Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Before we get started, I want to pray just one more time um, and just ask God to be with us um, and um, help guide us as we explore his word. So let's pray really quick. Lord Jesus, uh, we, Lord, we love you and we cherish your gospel, Father. Um, Holy Spirit, be here as we, as we open your word to emphasize your word, um, as we talk about, as we study what it means to be a Christian um, of what it means to leave behind us a legacy of following Jesus. Lord, I pray for help in the difficulty of understanding your word, understanding its context, and applying it to our life. Father, I pray that you would, you would be kind to us as we um, talk about something challenging, Lord. Uh, Father, we love you. We're grateful for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as Devin read, we're going to be in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. Um, and it's actually really cool that we are in James uh, because um, James holds kind of a unique place in the, in the context of the New Testament. Um, it's unique in its emphasis, and it's unique in its literary kind of form. Uh, we've been going through Proverbs with, with Tyler. Tyler's been preaching through Proverbs for the past several months, and... Um, uh, Proverbs is a, a, a book of wisdom, and actually James is a book of wisdom as well. Um, and undoubtedly, if you were to read through the entirety of James, of the book of James, you would see and feel the parallels to Proverbs and how it reads um, and how we understand it. Um, but as similar as James is to Proverbs, uh, there is also this large and glaring difference. Uh, Proverbs was written to God's people through Solomon uh, before Jesus came to this earth, before Jesus went to the cross before he died and rose again. And James was written afterwards, after Jesus came to this earth. And this is significant because as we read our Bibles, uh, whether the Old Testament or the New, all of it is pointing to the center. It's pointing to the Gospels, and it's pointing to Jesus. And so what Proverbs does in pointing forward to wisdom and the attainment of wisdom, what it means to fear the Lord, uh, the perfection of wisdom in Jesus, James does in pointing back towards what that, where that wisdom was, was fulfilled, to where the source of wisdom in Christ and what it means to live out of that wisdom rather than attaining that wisdom. So as James points back um, in, in speaking to Christians and speaking to churches, it describes what it, what it is like to have already received the wisdom of God in Jesus and then how to live out of that wisdom. Now, I bet that most of us in here, uh, if not all of us, have, have seen or watched or even binge-watched some of those, those crime shows on TV. There's like 100 million of them, right? You have like CSI, NCIS, uh, well, CSI is pretty old, uh, uh, Law and & Order. And then of these shows, there's like a thousand different versions in a thousand different U.S. cities, right? Um, but all these shows, and hundreds of other ones like it, have this similar premise. And the premise is that there is evidence left behind from some crime or event or something that happened, and the story of, the story of, these, uh, of these, these shows tracks the evidence, picks up pieces of the story through what's left behind, crafts this narrative, and as it crafts it, we get a clear picture of what actually happened in these, in these little stories. Throughout the book of James, 
His focus and emphasis is on the kind of evidence that Christians leave behind. He's going to point to what a life looks like that follows Jesus. See, if we read James in a vacuum, it can read as do these things and you'll attain the grace of God or do these things and you'll be right with God. But what James is actually after in the book, uh, in his letter, is he's pointing to what it looks like to be a Christian, not what it looks like to become a Christian. And so with that as our backdrop, um, the question that James asks in this letter is what kind of life, what kind of legacy do you leave as a Christian? Evidence that you love Jesus, evidence that you walk with the Lord, evidence that you cherish his word, or evidence that you're aiming at something else. A word that he'll use in our text this morning, evidence that you're chasing something worthless. The type of evidence that the author, James, is going to talk about in the text this morning is a Christian's relationship to the word of God. What does a Christian's relationship to the Bible look like? And we're going to see this morning our our general premise, our thesis, as we read this, it's simple. It's actually part of the title. If you have a little title in your, in, your, in your Bible, it's just simply this. Following Jesus means knowing and doing God's word. Very simple. Following Jesus means knowing and doing God's word. James is going to show us that real Christ followers, men and women that really love Jesus, are going to cherish God's word, are going to love it, and are going to obey it. And we're going to see this in two kind of main sections this morning. First is Christians receive or listen to God's word with humility. And second is that Christians do the word. They obey the word of God with consistency. So those are the first two paragraphs, and Devin read three paragraphs. That final paragraph that James gives us in chapter one is actually what it looks like practically to do the word with consistency, to obey God's word. In other words, three pieces of evidence that Christians should leave behind if you follow Jesus. So, open with your, me your Bibles to James 1. Uh, we're going to start with verses 19 through 20. Um, it'll be on the screen or on your screen at home if you don't have your Bible open. Uh, but we're going to start in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is where we see our first point tonight, that that Christians receive, Christians listen to God's word with humility. Now, right off the bat in this paragraph, in this text, we see two kind of things happening, right? We see anger and we see God's word. We see human anger and we see receiving God's word with anger. There's this contrast happening. Um, An exhortation and a warning about anger, that's filthiness, it's wickedness, it's unrighteousness before God. And the second is this encouragement to receive with humility God's word and listen to God's word. So why this contrast? Why a contrast between something like emotion, like an anger, and then receiving God's word in humility? Why that contrast? Well, I think if we think about anger for a little bit, anger is often accompanied by an indignant, self-righteous pride. This justification, this justification that what we believe, what we think is right, is absolute truth. Unrighteous human anger is always a matter 
of person. And we're not talking about righteous anger. There is a righteous anger. And that righteous anger is always at, at sin before God. It is, it is about not an offense to you, but an offense to God's kingdom and his word and his ways. And righteous anger is always accompanied by other attributes of God, as such as generous, kindness, generosity, meekness, gentleness. But that's not the kind of anger that James is talking about here. James is talking about the kind of anger that is built on authority, your authority. See, the church that James is writing to, the time that James is writing this to, was a church that was persecuted. It was a, it was a time where the gospel was exploding. Um, just a decade or a couple of decades after Jesus left this earth, people are coming to know Jesus. The gospel is exploding. Churches are growing everywhere in the ancient world. And the world around them was changing in response. You see, the world didn't like Christians. They didn't like a religion that worshipped a dead guy that claimed he was alive. They didn't like the challenge to their authority that Jesus brought. They, religious people didn't like what they saw as an abandonment of their tradition for this heretic Jesus. So from all sides, this ancient church, these ancient Christians were being persecuted. They're being beaten, arrested. Their shops were getting closed down. Some of them were even being killed. The world these Christians were facing was harsh and brutal. It was suffering. It was profoundly offensive. James is writing to a church that is persecuted. But look at what he says. Look what he says about that persecution at the beginning of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Then skip forward to verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, in the face of such atrocities as murder and arrest, violence, anger, bitterness, resentment and rage would have been reasonable responses to the world around him. I mean, think about the way you and I, I have a two and a half year old. She's like starting to communicate, you know, like back and forth and you can understand her and she can understand you. And like, think about how, think about how with our children, how easily we're set off when they don't listen or obey. Think about how you react to election season. Think about how you react to the other political party, its ideology. Think about how you react to five o'clock on Reserve Street Bridge when you get cut off. If there was justification for anger, it's most assuredly not for our 21st century pettiness, but in the systematic murder, abuse, and torture of the early church. Or when Jesus was taken in the garden, Peter watched as his Messiah and God was taken on false charges by Romans and took up a sword to defend him? If there was justification for anger, it's for the early church. It's for Peter defending Jesus. And yet Jesus said, put down your sword. James says, be slow to anger. Be slow to speak. Put away the pride that compels it. And instead, approach God's word with humility. There's such a temptation for us to craft for ourselves what is a right and what is a wrong response to the world around us, whether it's persecution or getting cut off on Reserve Street. After all, we're the ones that experience this. We're the ones who experience the pain and the suffering and the heart of life. And so we act with a righteous indignation at the, wor that, at the world that has wronged us and at those that have done so, that have offended us. 
Look again at what James says about anger, verse 20 and 21. For the anger of man does not produce righteousness, the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, the thrust of this first part of our text is to remove our own experiences, our own feelings, and our own authority as any way to evaluate a response to our circumstances. And instead, look to God's word for wisdom and authority on how to respond to our circumstances. See, Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. We're self-centered. Our sensibilities, if they are our guides, they will lead us down a path of filthy and rampant wickedness. Whether we're persecuted as the church or whether it's the pettiness that you and I face every day. James exhorts Christians to listen to and receive God's word as their authority with humility and a meek heart. See, evidence of a life captured by the gospel of Jesus is one who receives God's word with meekness and humility, despite how counter that may be to the culture around us or what is at war within our own hearts. See, God's word is the primary way that he communicates to humans. Um, and it isn't limited by the scope of our experiences. It is perfect, it is timeless, and it reaches beyond our brokenness and beyond our circumstances into eternity. So we receive, humbling ourselves, removing ourselves as an authority. We receive God's word because it could save our souls from heartache now and heartache for eternity. But what does this mean, like now? What this means now is pretty simple. You read your Bible. You read your Bible. You read your Bible and you listen to it. Not letting it collect, collect dust on your bookshelf or desk or letting the cover like curl as it sits in the window of your car. We read it. We listen to it. We submit to it where it offends us, where it rubs us the wrong way. We humble ourselves to God's word. James goes on in this text. Reading isn't all we do. After all, if we, what is faith and belief without action? We hate hypocrites, right? Especially millennials and Gen Zers. We really don't like hypocrites. So what do we do with what we read, with what we cherish? Read James 21, verse 22 through 25 with me. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, <clears throat> deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For, he, for if he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is our second point this morning is that Christians do the word, obey the word with consistency. Uh, have you guys ever heard the story, the ancient story of Narcissus? Narcissus, it's an ancient myth, a Greek and Roman myth, um, about a young man who's never seen a reflection of his face. He's a beautiful young man, looking similar to what you see up here this morning. <laughs> and he's walking by this lake, this clear crystal lake. And as he looks over, he sees his reflection in the lake. For the very first time, he sees his reflection. And as he looks upon his own face, he can't look away because it's so beautiful. 
And eventually he becomes so obsessed with, with his own image that he realizes that he's never going to be able to have the love of someone so beautiful. He's so overcome with grief on that bank of that lake that he dies. And as the Greek myth goes, Narcissus is admiring himself to this day in the underworld, unable to take his eyes off his own reflection. It's the story where we get the word narcissism. He was so obsessed with himself, he couldn't look anywhere outside of himself for beauty or satisfaction or love or direction. Nothing else could compel him to look away from that reflection. The simile James uses here in this text is similar. A man looks in the mirror and sees, again, only himself. But rather than being captivated by the beauty of what he sees, he looks at it, sees it, forgets it, and walks away. Forgets what he looks like, totally uncompelled, totally unmoved, no defining features, no identity, nothing to move him. Rather than seeing beauty in himself, like Narcissus, this man sees nothing worth remembering. Nothing so important that he would remember. What a ridiculous example, right? That he would forget, we would forget what ourselves look like. I mean, and he, it says after he looks intently in the mirror at himself. Like he's, he's looking into that mirror, examining himself, looking at his, looking at my bearded, balded, beautiful face. What a ridiculous example that I would forget that I have a beard or I'm losing a little hair. How silly is it then that we would claim conversion by the gospel of Jesus, study our Bibles with intensity and vigor, and yet return to the doldrums of life unchanged and unmoved in our walk with the Lord? Again, how much do we hate hypocrites, right? then why are we so often contented to see one in the mirror? James makes the argument that what do you see when you look at the Bible? What do you see when you look at this book? A tome of ancient wisdom, a book of morals and ethics, a story of some old dead guys that have some things to teach us about life, a textbook to be studied and tested on, or theology to be learned and internalized. All of these things may be true about the Bible, but more than any of those oversimplifications, this book, this revelation of God to humanity, the communication of God to his people, it is the glorious law of God made perfect. It is the perfect law of God. In it is the gospel of Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. The gospel of Jesus that is able to save our souls. Now, do you realize, do you, do you guys realize what this is? The God of the universe condescended from per- perfect divine existence, whatever that looks like, and has communicated to us fallen, finite, broken creatures that, that can't fix our own cars. <laughs> Fallen, finite creatures that I can't even fix. I have a step that's broken in my garage. I can't even fix that to save my life. And yet God chose to communicate to us the nature of reality, who he is, who we are, and how he might please him. What a gift God has given us. 
God has given us the word that we might believe it and internalize it, but it doesn't end with believing and internalizing. God has given us his word so that it might shape how we live and what we do in this life. See, with humility, a Christian receives the word of God. This is our authority. But with consistency and conviction, we do the word of God. We obey it. We conform to it. And the beauty of this specific text is that God doesn't leave us hanging with what it actually looks like to do the word. He doesn't leave us, uh, doesn't leave doing, the God's work, doing God's word in ambiguous uncertainty. The final part of our text is what the doing actually looks like. James gives us three examples, three points of application of what it means to receive God's word and to do God's word. And actually, if you're going to actually read the rest of the book of James, it, most of it can be uh, uh, fit into the three things that James is going to mention here. So the first one that James, the first point of application that James gives us, what it means to do God's word is to watch our speech. Look at James 1 verse 26. 1 verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This kind of harkens back to the first part of the text, right, where it says slow to speak, quick to listen. Speech and the tongue are themes throughout all of God's word. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of commands and instructions from God and what it means, from God and his word, on what it means to speak in ways that honor him and love others. Speaking in ways that reflect the character and goodness of God. Look at Psalm 34, 13. It says this, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Doing the word means watching how you speak, the tone you use, with whom you use that tone, the vocabulary and the words you use, with whom you use that vocabulary. Later in this letter, James is going to talk about speech and the power of it to build up or tear down. Johnny actually preached a sermon on this. Look at James 2, uh, rather James 3, verses 5 and 6. It says this, uh, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among... Our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. If you've experienced personally the harsh words of a friend or spouse, you've experienced that blazing fire, how it can affect you. And yet we are so foolish to not heed his words early in our, in our text, and rather than being slow to speak, we are quick with our words in even the most innocuous of circumstances. <laughs> but it's not just the effect that our words have that matter. It's not just that they can be perceived poorly or how someone can receive them, but it's the heart of speech. Look at Luke 6, verse 45, where Jesus himself says this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the uh, the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And look what Solomon says in Proverbs 15. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Jesus in Luke, Solomon in Proverbs, both make the same assertion that our speech 
directly reflects the character and the content of our hearts. Both making the point that the evidence, the evidence of our speech points to a deeper heart reality. If you think about it <clears throat> a little bit deeper about speech, um, there's, a, there's a depth to what it means to speak. We're talking about God's word after all, right? Like that's the thrust of this text. As we said, this is God communicating. The primary way he communicates to us what's the primary way we communicate with people? The words. We talk. We talk to each other. The primary way you and I communicate is talking to each other, which means that our speaking to one another is a way that you and I reflect the image of God to each other, how we speak. God communicates to us through his words, and we communicate to each other through our words. Yet more evidence, our speech of either a heart that is faithfully reflecting the character of God, a heart that loves Jesus, a heart that is converted, that is Christian, or a heart consumed by itself, its own authority, its own goodness, determining for itself what is right, wrong, good, and bad. See, our speech matters. It's one of those truths we read over and over again in Scripture we nod to, of course we agree. But today when I go watch, fan, when I go watch football after church, I, I do fantasy football, I'm going to inevitably say something dumb to some random guy on a screen that I don't even know, call him an idiot because he's not doing good enough for my team. <clears throat> Leaving evidence behind through my speech of what I really value. In this case, the pride of knowing that I know more about statistics in football than the guys I do football with, fantasy football with. When you're harsh with your wife, when you speak to your kids in anger, when you mock a friend, you are leaving behind evidence that points to a rea reality inside of your heart and soul. Speech matters. A life changed by Jesus is going to speak differently. It's going to be distinct. <clears throat> second point, or the second point of application James gives us is loving the weak. Turn to James 1, 27, and we'll read the first part of it. <clears throat> it says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The second point of application for what it means to do the word, to receive the word with humility and do the word with consistency is loving the weak. Now, this is one of those verses, right? We've all heard a lot. It's one of those verses you probably will see on a, a, a wooden sign, like wood burn somewhere in someone's house. You'll see it on a coffee cup. You'll see it on Facebook and Twitter. It's one of the verses that everyone agrees with. Even non-Christians are like, heck yes, that's awesome. That's great. Go do that. Loving the poor and needy, caring for widows and orphans, the most vulnerable and, the, and oppressed. It's not just part of our Christian culture. It's a part of our culture at large. I think there's a profound reason for this. That there's a reason that this resonates so deeply in our hearts and souls. That's because it's the gospel. It's part of the gospel. Jesus left the privilege and power of his divinity, perfect existence with the Father, and entered the oppressive experience of humanity to live perfectly, die a death he didn't deserve, 
and give to his people what he did deserve, his righteous inheritance. Offering the weakest, the vilest, the poor, Jesus offered the oppressed what he earned that would change not just their circumstances but their eternities. We love stories like the like this because it built into us is a need for this story to be our reality. We love stories of the weak and the needy rising out of their circumstances because as lost souls, we've been brought out of our circumstances by the gospel of Jesus. So time for some honest self-assessment. Is caring for the weak, caring for widows, caring for orphans, loving the weak, is that a normal part of your Christian experience? When you look behind you at your life, at the evidence your life leads behind, does it craft a picture of a life that loves the weak? Have you invested in serving those in our community that have nothing to offer you? Because doing the word means doing the second greatest commandment, as Jesus said in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, as Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Look what Jesus said specifically about helping the weak. The spirit of the Lord, Luke 4, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this makes sense. Because those with the least, those with the most need and the most broken circumstances can see so much more clearly their need for saving than those that have everything. How many of us, after all, were saved by God when we were at our weakest, our most broken? I think one of the areas of doing of the Christian life that we struggle with the most in the 21st century church is our evangelism. And I think that struggle with evangelism is directly tied to our interactions or lack thereof with the weak, the broken, and oppressed in our city and in our neighborhoods. Those with the most need, the most hurt, and the most pain have the most to gain by hearing and believing in the gospel of Jesus. But we are too often busy in our affluent circles of wealth and privilege to notice, much less love, these people. So while this application that James gives us of doing, uh, of loving and mercy and care, while this is the most palatable culturally and the most celebrated culturally, it could very well be the one we struggle with the most. And I say this not from a place of, I say this from a place of conviction. I am weak. I'm often a fool. I'm one of the worst offenders. But nonetheless, it remains true that pure religion, pure application of love towards others in need reflects clearly the love of Jesus that he had for his people. Unlovable creatures with little 
with nothing to offer God. And yet he would choose to adopt and love us. So we as Christians choose to adopt and love those with nothing to offer us. The third and final point of application James gives in this final paragraph is uh, an, actually a negative. It's, so we have watching our speech, we have loving those in need, and the third is not conforming to culture. Read verse 27 with me again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, the second part, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, of the three of them, this is the one that kind of hits awkwardly, uh, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's I, I do speak from the overly sensitive sensibilities of a millennial, uh, but I hear unstained, I read unstained, and it hits a little awkward, um, as, if, as if I have a need to make an excuse for the word unstained, Right? What a foolish reaction considering everything James just talked about, about receiving the word of God with humility. Like I honestly read this and I was like, how do I explain this? You know, how do I explain this away? How do I explain this gently and kindly to those that are going to respond awkwardly? But to understand this well, we need to remember who these people are. They're persecuted Christians. Now how tempting would it be at the prospect of imprisonment, violence, and torture, at the prospect of murder, how would it, tempting would it be to put up a sign that says not Christian. To avoid the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the persecution. How easy would it be to avoid conversations about religion and faith at your kid's little league game or in conversations at work because some fear that someone might think about you differently or treat you differently. Paul says this in Romans 12, Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Going back to Romans 8, verse 29, it says this also, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of what? His son, not culture, his son, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Being a Christian means being conformed to the image of Jesus, not the image of your peers, celebrities, or influencers. Unstained means unaffected. Unstained means freed from. Consider again the context of these people. Why is he urging them to be unstained? Because the easy answer is to pretend or ignore or avoid their faith in a public way. James' urge with the word unstained is simply live out the Christian life publicly. Just be a Christian. Don't hide from it. That God's truth shapes your life. Not your truth, not your identity group, not, your cultural, not the cultural truth. Not what's easiest right now or what saves you the most suffering. The truth of God in his word saves, shapes us. See, these three characteristics, speech, caring for the weak, and conforming to Christ, not culture, they're all pieces of evidence that a Christian's life leaves behind that CSIs and detectives and lawyers 
can uncover the points to and builds a narrative of a life lived to the glory of God. I want to finish our text by noticing one more thing in what we read. I want to read verse 22 and verse 26 again. Go to, go to verse 22 with me. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Go to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. See, it can be easy to call yourself a Christian, especially myself. I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Christian school with Christian friends. It was very easy to call myself Christian. That was the air I breathed. Those are my friends. That's how I fit in. In this country, for the 250 years, it's been in many times an advantage to be a Christian. This text makes clear that Christians lived distinctly, not just in what we call ourselves, but in how we live. To love Jesus, to truly love Jesus and cherish his gospel, means living a pattern of life that doesn't look like the rest of the world, that reflects the character of God in our speech and how we treat others. I want to leave you with what James leaves us in the tone of this text, and that's a warning. This is a warning. Do not think that you are something that you're not. Because if you claim the Christian life, but your life doesn't reflect, reflect that monumental reality, you're only deceiving yourself. If there isn't a pattern of following Jesus, if all that marks you as a Christian is the ritual of, of coming to church, but in between Sundays looks no different from your coworker, I implore you to examine your heart. Do you see evidence of someone that loves Jesus above all? Do you see a pattern of someone that humbly trusts God's word above their own feelings? Do you see evidence of someone that does what scripture commands? And we're not perfect. I'm not, James isn't after perfection. Not standing up here claiming perfection. It's after a trajectory in our life. Growth in Christ is just that, it's growth. But don't let nobody's perfect be a mantra that pacifies you into complacency. The gospel should be seen in your life. There will be fruit there will be evidence of a life changed by God's glory. And if you don't see it, if you don't see any evidence or fruit, if you don't see a trail of, of evidence pointing to a heart changed by the glory of God, then return to the cross of Christ. Because only there will any of us find that which can save our souls and change our eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we ask for humility uh, in a time where autonomy and deciding for ourselves what is good and right is not no, just normal but celebrated. Lord, let us remain unstained 
by that pervasive lie that we get to determine our destiny. Lord Jesus, help us to conform ourselves to your word where it is hard. Lord, help us to live a life that is the doing of God's word. Lord, help us to speak kindly and gently and mercifully. Lord, help us to see and help and love the weak. Lord, if we were to do this on our own, we would fail every time. Lord, we ask for your help. Change our hearts that we might see it. Change our hearts that we might be compelled to move for you. Lord, let us trust in nothing but your gospel. Let us not trust in ourselves. Jesus, we need you. In your name we pray, amen.